Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Green Tree Python Keeper Radio. How you doing, Bill? I'm doing great, buddy. Uh, you scared me a little bit there, man. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, that was a pretty nice introduction song we had going on there. Well, it was phenomenal. Uh, do you want to give credit where credit's due? Yeah, a little bit of... Uh, Condro trivia right here. Uh, Marshall Mendez, Condro keeper and breeder. Uh, that that's him playing that music. He he let us use his uh, his audio track for our show, and um, we're we're delighted that he let us use it, and uh, and it's here opening the show for us. Very nice, Marshall. I, I know he's listening. I hope he's listening. So thank you very much for that. Uh, buddy, kind of right off the bat, you know, I've got to ask you, this is our inaugural show. Uh, potentially millions of listeners out there listening right now, I've got to ask you, man, are, are you nervous at all? Um, I'm a little nervous only because, as you know, uh, I was just able to log in 20 seconds before we came on the air. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah that'll, that'll get, keep you a little tight. Well, I yes, was, it will. I was How about yourself? Maybe uh, no, I'm not nervous. Um, I was thinking that maybe we could uh, try to get a feel for our audience, our audience's presence out there. Let's uh, let's see if we can see what's going on out there. Okay. Hmm. Cricket, crickets chirping, buddy. Yes. Uh, I guess we don't have much to be nervous about then, do we? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's get this let's get this party started. Yeah, let's let's get it started. Um, so let's let's jump right into it. Um, Bill, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks that may not know you? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Bill Spiegel. I live in Arlington, Texas, um, and. You know, let, let me just first start off by saying, buddy, that uh, I'm very, very excited to be doing the show. Um, you know, we haven't known each other that long. We met uh, last year at ICAS. Um, I'm just ecstatic to be part of this show. Uh, the Condor community, it's unique in so many ways. And, uh, you know, we've got so many knowledgeable people who are willing to share 
and it's this kind of information and this kind of sharing that I think, you know, for me as a new condro keeper has made this a, a pretty uh, smooth entry in, into the realm of condros. Um, nice. I've been, you know, I've been keeping reptiles for probably 15 years. Um, you know, when, when you asked me to do the show, uh, I guess I was uh, a little bit puzzled. Uh, you know, when we met at ICAS, uh, you know, we got to know each other a little bit. Uh, I've been having fun breeding and keeping uh, ball and carpet pythons for, for quite a while. Uh, but I only acquired my first chondro a little over a year ago. So I thought it was a little bit unusual that you'd ask me to participate. Uh, but after talking things through with you and, and a few other folks, I thought, well, maybe we could operate under the premise of uh, bringing a new chondro keeper's perspective and questions to the show. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to ask you and our guests questions that are on the forefront of new keepers' minds, and, and then I'll throw the old school guys, I'll throw them to you. It makes complete sense. And I always think that having a fresh set of eyes or a new perspective uh, can help someone like me maybe break an old habit that's, that needs to be broken and changed. So, you know, and I think you have a, you've, you also have a very strong science background. Um, and you've got some different experience with animals that I have no personal experience with. And it can be times for me hard to relate to uh, keepers of different species of snakes since I essentially keep two species. And um, so you have that experience and you bring that to the table. And I think um, that's going to make, you know, you a valuable asset as people discover chondros or green tree pythons and, and they want to take a chance and, and keep these guys in captivity and figure out what makes them tick. Well, I think uh, so, one of the goals for both of us, I was just going to say one of the goals for both of us, buddy, was to introduce new keepers to chondros. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to understand that most of the people right now that are not keeping chondros are keeping other species, which is great, but we're going to have to learn how to incorporate keeping chondros in uh, environments where they're perhaps already keeping animals like ball pythons and, and carpet pythons. So um, I've certainly had to make a few subtle adjustments in how I keep my other animals to incorporate some of the, the needs of chondros. And so, you know, maybe I can, I can help a little bit with that. Yep, no problem. I, I think so. I think that's exactly, that's exactly why I was thinking of you, why I had you in mind. So why, Bill, why chondros? Why why, after keeping, uh, you know, ball pythons and successfully keeping those and breeding those and other species of Morelia, why, why chondros? I think my, pro my progression or an experience with chondros is probably pretty typical. Um, not very many people start as their very first snake is a chondro. I mean, I think it's progression for most people. Uh, that was my experience. Um, it was a natural progression from carpet pythons uh, for myself. Uh, initially, you know, I was drawn to their, just their, their pure physical beauty. Um, but like so many people out there, I was worried. You know, I was worried that I couldn't successfully keep them. But luckily I knew several people, uh, Barry Manson and Gary S. and Joe Montini. These guys I knew kept both carpets and chondros. And eventually they convinced me to give it a try. So I 
like a lot of other people, started lurking on the MVF, the uh, Morelia Viridis Forum. And this is where I started really figuring out that the chondro community was one of the special things about getting involved in chondros. And that was reinforced when I went to ICAS and, you know, met a lot of people up there. So great. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of where you I started. Are you working with locality specific chondros, designer chondros? Do you have a, a specific interest? You know, right now, um, to be honest, I'm a little bit all over the board. Um, I got my first, my very first chondro came from Barry Manson. It's a puppy dog tame, three-year-old biak uh, that really started the addiction for me. Um, Barry sent me the perfect beginner chondro. It was a well-established animal, very docile. Um, I don't handle my animals a lot, but I wanted to be able to handle a green tree python. If I was going to get one, I wanted to be able to handle it, um, get to know it, and Barry sent me the perfect, the perfect snake. Um, that was quickly followed uh, by an animal produced, a, a joint venture between Joe Montini and Joe Janovitz. Uh, it was a red neo. Uh, Joe Montini's Lucia and uh, Joe Jano's Duffman produced this. Uh, it's a yearling nice. now. And it, it is, it's spectacular. Uh, it's got a pedigree that goes back to the early days, which has been really good for me because it helped me, look, you know, kind of forced me a little bit to learn a little bit about the history of designer animals. Uh, but it's got Mr. Blue and Carolina and Old Yeller and Joan Collins, you know, all these historic animals. And it's, it's been a perfect animal, and it's phenotypically the favorite animal I have in my room. Uh, I call it nice. Lucky Charms. You know, lucky charms, <laughs> green clothes, yellow moons, blue diamonds. It, it's got it's got all of that. And uh, so, just 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 the per- I started with the perfect first two snakes, and nice. I don't have to tell you that that's that's what it you know that's what we need to have happen for new keepers. They have to get their first one, right. and it has to be a positive experience. Exactly. So, uh, what are your goals? Are you going to breed green tree pythons? Are they pets? Are you going to you know, are you going to work them into other breeding projects? I'm definitely going to, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm attempting my first breeding this year. I'm breeding one pair. Um, they, it's uh, the animals that I'm breeding are a BIAC locality type female and then a uh, proven, you know, I really don't even know the background on, on the male. He's a, uh, an animal that I, I got from Austin Horst, who, who's, a, who's a captive bred uh, green snake. And uh, I've nice. seen a couple of walks with those two animals. So, you know, just keeping my fingers crossed, maybe the chondro gods will, will bless me with a, with a clutch this year. The one thing that I did do, I was very nervous about, uh, you know, I've done some reading and some research about establishing new babies. So I was very nervous about that. So I did go out and acquire, uh, you know, a handful of, of baby animals um, and purposefully a, a couple of problem animals to, to try to get established. Um, and so I probably, between several different sources, Matt Morse uh, is in Austin, which is just a few hours from me. I acquired four baby yellow animals from him. Uh, Matt works with high yellow animals. He's got a phenomenal collection and he was very gracious in introducing me uh, into his collection and, and showing me some things. I'm, I feel a little bit isolated here in Texas 
uh, buddy. You're in the hot right. the hotbed of of Congro, you know, the Congro world where you are in in, in Maryland. Uh, I know there's Congro people here in Texas. Uh, Matt's the only one I've had a chance to meet, uh, but I certainly don't have the luxury of being able to to go to somebody else's house and and look at how they have things set up or have somebody come into my house. So hopefully the show can can help you know other people like me. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, the, uh, I just did want to mention I've got one other animal that uh, I'm particularly uh, fond of. It came from uh, a joint pairing between David Newman and Byron Susan, who I've not had contact with. Um, but David sent me this animal, and uh, it's a Tinley Diablo pairing. Phenomenal animal that's just now going through its uh, ontogenic color change. And kind of like the animal that Barry and Joe sent me, it's it's the it's just a perfect snake. Uh, I just feel very very lucky to have what I have in my limited collection so far. Nice, very nice. It, it helps when you are able to to pick up animals from uh, folks in the community who are well known for not only producing great animals but for providing uh, great support to enthusiasts that, who are interested in the hobby. So I think you made some outstanding great choices with, with picking up those animals. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I, and I, you know, every person that I've come in contact with, and again, it comes down to the Condor community, it's, it's a different thing out there. I'm, I'm pretty connected into the carpet community. Uh, and the carpet community is a very good community too. Um, it's just bigger. It's just bigger than the Condor community. Um, and then, uh, again, I'm sure there's a ball python community. I don't certainly feel like I'm involved in it in any form or fashion. Uh, I love ball pythons. I've bred them for a long time, got a moderate-sized collection, but there really is no community like the condor community. Right. I agree. I agree. All right. Good deal. Well, I mean, you've uh, got to know a little bit about a little bit about me, um, buddy, why don't I turn the tables and briefly let you have a minute to kind of introduce yourself and your back background with reptiles and chondros? Sure. Uh, my name is Buddy Buscemi. I've I've been a reptile addict since I was a small child. Uh, as soon as I figured out I could, you know, find snakes and uh, turtles and frogs and salamanders in my local neighborhood growing up, I, I spent spring, summer, and fall chasing those animals. Um, and was you know saddened when they went away during the winter time and couldn't wait for them to return in the spring um, and then uh I guess somewhere around the age of ten or twelve, I took a field trip down into the uh down to the national zoological park in d c and lo and behold, they had a room set up in the reptile house that had uh, baby chondros in it, red and yellow neonates set up in one gallon mason jars and with uh pothos vines in it and water in the bottom of it. And I was just amazed and taken in by those animals. I think I, I stared at them probably I used up all my reptile house time just staring at those snakes. And um, and so it, it it turns out that, you know, I'm, I live in Maryland and Maryland happened to be uh, a hotbed for chondros. So uh, I acquired some pythons. I was always interested in the stuff that it, you couldn't normally find. Um, I started out with children's python. They were my first uh, species of python that I kept and bred. And 
picked up some carpet pythons, picked up some more Antaricea species, picked up some more Morelli, and finally got into some Lyasis. And uh, during that time, I met uh, Tim Morris. And uh, folks who are familiar with the condor community will know Tim. Tim volunteered down at the National Zoological Park, was friends with Trooper Walsh, who was breeding these baby chondros that I was staring at when I was uh, at a young, impressive age, impressionable age at the National Zoo. And uh, Tim and I became friends through another hobby, and I uh, went over his house and hung out one night, and he had a reptile room, and he took me in the reptile room, and the first thing I saw were green tree pythons. And, you know, I'd only read about them. I had no experience other than seeing them at the National Zoological Park. And, um, you know, Tim was like, oh, they're easy to take care of. And I was really excited. Um, and I was like, I want green tree pythons. And this is, you know, coming up on 20 years ago now. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, how long ago that was. That was 20 years ago. That's amazing. Yes, coming up on about 20 years now. And um, Tim eventually bred chondros and produced some chondros. And uh, Tim and I worked together on some other breeding projects that were not chondro-related. And uh, I actually watched him establish the clutch that Mr. Blue came from. And that actually, believe it or not, frightened me away from chondros for quite a while. Um, uh, because, you know, I thought, well, if I'm going to keep them, I'm going to breed them. And seeing the, the tremendous effort that Tim was putting in and getting these babies established kind of turned me off a bit towards chondro ownership. And I thought, well, you know, I'll wait a little bit. And uh, But it's funny, Tim and I joke because uh, Mr. Blue was actually for sale. Tim and I would share a table at a reptile show, at reptile shows, and he would bring those chondros. And one of those chondros on the table for sale with all the other babies had was Mr. Blue. Um, wow. He was priced a, little, priced a little bit higher because he had a, a very reduced pattern. So something was already special about him, but it wasn't until he started undergoing his color change that Tim was like, yeah, this snake isn't leaving my house. So, um, you know, <laughs> someone could have bought that snake and walked away with it um, as a neonate. And But, uh, you know, so, you know, Tim and, Tim really introduced me to it, and then I met other people through Tim. I met uh, Sean Stewart, who at the time didn't keep chondros. He was working with berms and some species of candoya, and he was also doing frogs, which he still does today. And then that led me to meeting Christian Stewart. So, and then those guys eventually roped, brought me back into the world of chondros. And Tim pointed me in the, the direction for my first chondro purchase, which was 10 years ago. So, um, and ever since then, I, was, I, uh, I sold my large collection of other species of pythons. And I was like, I just want one display animal, and I want it to be a green tree python. And that changed quickly after I purchased my first green tree python. The co collection mm -hmm. quickly grew, and it went from being just a display animal to I think I want to try to breed these, and, you know, that's just the way it goes. And now you have, I have more than I probably care to admit. Um, but, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a fun animal. I enjoy working with them. And um, I, uh, you know, I can't say that for me personally I like all of them. I, you know, I like the locality animals. I like the designer animals. And I guess if I had more time, I have the space, but I don't know if I have the time. If I had more time, I'd probably have a lot more. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, they, you know, my, yeah, they're, they're addictive. And, and one of my goals has been not only just to breed these, but to maybe put these, put some, put some green tree pythons in the hands of people that, who may think that green tree pythons really aren't for them or have always been turned off by them and, and so that they don't make the same mistake I, I did. And, 
you know, leave a 10-year hole or gap in their in their snake-keeping history without Condro. So I can't say yeah, that for everyone, but I think that's, yeah. that's a goal of that's both per- of ours. And it's it's interesting that you say, you know, the time factor. Uh, you know, I think we're going to debunk a lot of myths about Condros. I think they, you know, in EVs, it's a relative term, but I think that they can be easy to keep but they are certainly more time-consuming or can be more time-consuming um, than other animals. In other words, uh, you know, you can't keep 50 chondros the same way that you could keep 50 ball pythons. And, um, Absolutely. you know, time, time is just a factor in taking care of them. And obviously maybe in, in this show or in other shows we can discuss some of the reasons. It doesn't mean that they're harder. It doesn't mean that they're less hardy. Um, but they just take more time. They take more commitment. Right. I agree. And one of the reasons why I want to keep her in the name of the radio show is that I really think you need to learn how to be a keeper before you can aspire to do other things with this species. I, I speak to a lot of people, and immediately off the bat, they tell me, I want to breed green tree pythons, and they're not keeping them yet. And, you know, it's, 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 a good, go- it's good to have goals, um, and it's good to have long-term goals, but, you know, Somewhere in between there, you have to have these intermediate goals. And I think a lot of people that are interested in green tree pythons, the sooner they realize that being able to read these animals and know what's normal for a particular animal will will just pay dividends in the long run. Absolutely. Can you tell us what animals you're working with now? I work with pretty much everything. Um, I've got some designer stuff based along that has some lineage from the, the calico animal, calico lines from Greg Maxwell. Um, I have locality animals. I really like Beox. Uh, uh, they're probably my, my favorite locality. Um, and I like mainland types. I like sarongs, manaquaris. Uh, and uh, I also have uh, some animals from the uh, pairing the Bushmaster did back in 2009, and they're often referred to as the Bushmaster New Blue animals. I have quite a few of those. Um, so it's, I'm kind of everywhere. I see something and I like it, and I just try to, you know, incorporate it into a breeding plan. And, and you know, a lot of times I do it just to see what the results are going to be. And, um, yeah, you know, I can't really say that, you know, I'm probably not the, the best in planning, you know, what what phenotypes are going to be produced from, you know, particular pairings. I just, you know, pick the adults based upon I like how they look, and I also try to incorporate some temperament. Um, I like, you know, I like calm animals um, for many reasons. Um, so, you know, I just try to pick that and, and pair animals together, and I try to – my goal is every year to at least try to have at least one entry-level clutch of animals of green tree pythons available it um, doesn't always work out, but that's always a major goal every season for me is, is to try to do that. That way I can put, you know, these snakes in the hands of folks that are willing to take take the leap but don't want to incur a huge financial investment with their first chondro. Yeah, I think it's probably pretty wise. Uh doesn't really matter how much money you have. Uh, I don't think either one of us or, or a lot of people would recommend that Somebody's very first chondro will be a, you know, ultra thousand dollar uh, animal. Uh, I think you know, start with those entry level chondros, just like I'm doing. Right, agreed. 
Um, so uh, I know we want to we want to get to our guests, but we had a couple other things we wanted to just uh, uh, get through real quickly. Uh, you know, our, our goals for the show. We've already talked about really quite a few of them. Um, right. You know, introducing Condros to a new audience, and that's if I had to say, you know, the number one goal, at least for me, on painting this show, it would it would be that. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out and hopefully learn some ways, the best ways to introduce new people. Uh, and I think the key is to introduce them successfully to keeping chondros. You can, it's easy to introduce them to chondros, uh, but I think the support and the education and, you know, hopefully this radio show is just one more resource along with uh, the MVF forum uh, that people, uh, obviously, Greg Maxwell's book, uh, you know, just the more resources that people have available, I think the more successful they'll be. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, some of the things we've, we've already talked about a little bit, but, um, you know, no one knows everything, no matter how experienced you are with keeping these these snakes. There's always something more you can learn. So hopefully for the veteran conjurer keepers that are out there that are listening, hopefully we can uh, offer them a learning experience as well. And, you know, one of the neat things I think about chondros is that uh, no one I know keeps them the, exactly the same way that I do. And uh, I live around a, a pretty vibrant chondro or amongst a pretty vibrant chondro community. And uh, very few people keep them exactly the same way that I do. And so it's interesting. Well, you know, we're going to examine some common husbandry practices and see if maybe if certain regions of the country, certain practices don't work or if other areas of the country they do or if it's just uh, we're all wrong and one common practice could work for everybody. That'd that'd be fantastic. Uh, Along the same lines, you know, I know – one of uh, really especially recently for, for all experienced keepers is to, to try to debunk some of the, the common myths and myth, misconceptions about chondros. Uh, a lot of those things I have the feeling were generated when a, a large percentage of the animals available to the general public were wild-caught animals, and um, their behavior and uh, ways in which they were kept uh, are probably a lot different you know, now to modern day uh, chondros. So let's try to let's try to debunk some of the myths. Sounds like a great plan. And of course, I think you know we should spend some quality time with people who keep green tree pythons. Not necessarily breeders, but man, there's folks out there that keep them just as pets. And uh, keep and hopefully we'll have some. We're going to have some breeders on. And uh, hopefully some keepers and breeders of historical significance that maybe could explain some th- why things are the way they are in the condor community today and what they may, how they may have influenced the condor community and how those influences are still in practice today. I am looking forward to that, sir. Me too. So um, Bill had a great idea. He thought we should go over some condor news. And uh, so we have incorporated some Chondro news into our show. And uh, I'm going to start off with, uh, we actually lost a member of our Chondro community last week in a, a tragic car crash. And uh, the person we lost was Shane Snyder. And I, I knew Shane and um, 
we had attended many condor functions together. He was much like every other condor person I know, very passionate about his animals, um, had his own particular breeding projects. Uh, he's produced probably some of the, the best highway condors I've personally ever seen. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we're going to dedicate this show uh, to Shane Snyder, and hopefully this show can help embody what Shane was about, which is, you know, sharing the passion of condors with other people and, and, and enjoying these animals in both in captivity and their natural environment. Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, what a what a tragic, tragic loss. Uh, I know Shane was at ICAS. I, you know, there were several hundred people there. I met a lot of people. I unfortunately did not get to meet uh, and speak with Shane, but uh, I know what a valuable member of, of the community that he was. And, uh, you know, Obviously, yours and mine, our thoughts and prayers go out to him and his family. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we'll try to uh, get on to some other things that were in the news. Um, I didn't even see this story, buddy. You actually brought this to my attention, um, that, that keeping chondros has uh, now been legalized in the state of Massachusetts. I didn't know that it was illegal to keep chondros in the state of Massachusetts. Um, but a post, I think, yesterday was started uh, by a guy named Keith, and I think his last name is Begin. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he made the post that uh, no longer required to have a special permit to be kept legally in Massachusetts. And what, what a huge step forward that is, you know, in the recent phase of, of these tightening restrictions and legislation involving all of our passion to keep reptiles in general. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know why they would have been on the list, and they may. I'm not sure. I don't live in Massachusetts. I can't. I don't know what the state law is, but it might have been just a ban prohibiting any python or boa constrictor from pet ownership. Um, but I'm glad so to see. They called it an aggressive species that could be dangerous. And uh, okay. Keith did a very nice job. He, he made a, a, a video that he posted on uh, YouTube where he goes through just drawer after drawer of, of opening these chondros and putting his hand in and rubbing it and touching their head and picking it up. And he just uh, went to the nth extreme to show how non-aggressive this, this species is. So it was, it was great. Are you there, buddy? I am there, Bill. Okay. Um, it, um, I was, yeah, I had the mute button clicked. <laughs> uh, were you it, muting? It, were you muting your? You muted yourself. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a time for, good to see we've a actually, time for that. <laughs> yes, we've actually seen some progress. Uh, we're, we've actually been able to take a step forward. Um, as opposed to, you know, something has been given back as opposed to having something else taken away from us. I think it's a, it's a major victory, and it, it should be uh, celebrated for sure. Absolutely. We'll, we'll try to keep it moving in the right direction. You know, the other, uh, the other story that I saw and that, that pertains to this show 
um, and that I actually thought it would be good to, to review some of the recent news on the forum was that just incredible prolapse that was, that was posted. Did you get a chance to see that? I did see that prolapse. That was uh, major and scary looking. Yeah, scary looking, and it was obviously, uh, I think most people when they looked at it probably thought, at least I did immediately, it's an unsurvivable uh, injury. Uh, the gentleman that posted it did, in fact, uh, seek out treatment and, and did attempt to, to treat that animal, but it unfortunately uh, it unfortunately died. But uh, I've seen pictures of prolapses before, but nothing that ever looked like that. Yeah, that was major. That's, uh, I'm sure it's a huge loss to lose a, a gorgeous animal like that from something so sudden and, and traumatic that, you know, it, like apparently he just woke up and saw it in the cage and he did the right thing. He got it to a vet and they, they tried to, they did their best to, to try to solve the problem. But, you know, unfortunately not everything has a happy ending. No, no. And one of those things, just looking through his post is um, his husbandry seemed to be fairly uh, typical uh, for chondro keepers. I mean, I don't, didn't appear like he was overfeeding the animal or the animal didn't appear to be dehydrated or, Maybe some of the other things that our, our guests tonight can can talk about uh, the etiology, but I, I thought it did at least kind of tie in a little bit with uh, with the show tonight. Yep, agreed, absolutely. And I actually sent uh, our guest, who is Dr. Heather Bowles. Um, I actually sent her a photograph of that prolapse, so she would have a reference. So I'm actually going to bring Heather oh, wow. online. She's been holding she's been holding for Fantastic. about 33 minutes so i'm going to i'm going to bring her on and hopefully it works great hello dr bowles hi hey, how are you welcome to the show i'm very good how are you we're doing great how about yourself just fine just great good heather where are you um, calling where, where are you calling in from I am calling in from um, Hanover, Pennsylvania. And uh, I know I won't let, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not going to ruin Buddy's introduction, but I know that you know Buddy, your your, uh, Buddy's reptile vet, is that correct? One of them, yes. Well, very good. Buddy, do you want to say a few things? Do you want to say a few things about Heather or let her introduce herself? Sure. So let me give you a little background on Heather, the least that I know, um, is that uh, I started keeping these green tree pythons, and for years I kept these. I kept a lot of snakes and never had any issues with uh, any health issues. And I started keeping green tree pythons, and I started getting respiratory infections. So I had to seek out a uh, qualified reptile vet, and it so happened that I, I found Dr. Bowles, and. Uh, since I found her, I've been taking my snakes to her whenever they get sick. And most of the times when I see Dr. Bowles, I, I take an animal and it has a respiratory infection. So, um, Dr. Bowles, do you want to tell us about your practice and where it's located? Sure. Um, I work with another um, veterinarian at a practice in Westminster, Maryland, named Feathers, Scales, and Tails Veterinary Hospital. We see dogs and cats, but we primarily see um, birds, reptiles, exotic mammals, fish. Um, so we tend to specialize in those areas um, to basically serve the community 
um, who have pets, pet species that aren't traditionally seen by other veterinarians. Awesome. We, uh, I could use that some of that in my area <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, if you're not a cat, dog, or horse uh, down here in Texas, you're you're left out in the cold a lot of times. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that quite commonly. Um, and I know one of the the things that we were going to talk about is that if you don't have a veterinarian that routinely sees reptiles in your area, there are many different. Um, avenues as far as consultations to pursue. For example, we consult with other veterinarians across the country at no charge, either by email or by phone. Um, there's online sources for other veterinarians like Veterinary Information Network. So there's a lot of um, tools out there for veterinarians that may not see a lot of reptiles to basically reach out and get help so that these animals can be treated appropriately even if they don't, have, they don't routinely see them on a regular basis. That, that's that's phenomenal. What a, what a service. Uh, what a service to the reptile community. We, we thank you for that. Sure. How many Happy calls would you say? How many calls would you say uh, that you get in a a week or a, or or a month that would be from another vet unfamiliar with the species that's that would call and talk to you for consultation? You know, just off the top of my head, I'd probably say per month anywhere between five and twenty. I mean, it really can vary. Um, we also work with a laboratory, a diagnostic laboratory in California, where other veterinarians have sent, for example, blood samples or other samples into this lab, and they have trouble interpreting the results. They contact, they use us as, as consultants. So we consult on, on laboratory um, results quite regularly as well. So it, it can vary. Are most of the calls that you get concerning, let's say, chondros, what would you, what would you say would be the, the most consistent uh, call or consult that you'd get? Uh, respiratory disease. <laughs> gotcha. Definitely respiratory well, disease, yeah. Uh, uh, Heather, let me just ask you, um, kind of in general, why, do you, why did you develop an interest in working with, with reptiles uh, and amphibians as a veterinarian? Well, I basically developed an interest concurrently with working with birds, reptiles, amphibians, small mammals, and, and fish around the same times. Um, it started back even before vet school. It was just very interesting to me that it was a, an area of veterinary medicine that still had a lot of discovery to be made. Um, there was a lot of anecdotal information, which I'm sure you are very familiar with, um, where there weren't diagnostic studies, there were not peer-reviewed papers at that time. All of the papers back in the 1990s were, in my experience, um, written by veterinarians. They did not... Wow. There were not studies done. They, there was no funding for it, and there were very few veterinarians interested in pursuing that information. Now, that's changed quite a bit, but we still have a long way to go, um, particularly in the field of reptile medicine, um, just looking at different um, types of pharmacological studies to know simply what drug doses is that we're supposed to give these animals because, for example, when, with pain-controlled studies and things like that, they don't exhibit the same symptoms of pain as other animals. So it can be very hard to interpret 
their clinical signs decide on which types of, you know, and dosages of, of analgesics or other medications that we give. And back then, I mean, they considered a reptile was a reptile was a reptile, but you and I both know that a snake is not a snake and a snake is not a tortoise and a tortoise is not a lizard. So we, we've had great strides in the past several years, but we have far to go um, for certain. Right, right. And um, most of those strides have, have come via what, what avenue? I mean, are there uh, certain clinics around the country that are, uh, you know, endeavoring these, these scientific uh, instead of just anecdotal? Uh, I mean, they're, they're actually doing active research. Yes, actually there are. There are, there are more veterinarians that are employed by, um, by educational institutions or veterinary schools um, that work with reptiles and birds and, and small mammals. So there's a lot more studies being funded in that you know, type of arena. But there's also a lot of um, participation with private practitioners like myself that collaborate with institutions. And then we're able to because we see a larger caseload than those institutions traditionally, because we're not taking up our time with research and that sort of thing, we collaborate and use our personal experiences along with their educational information and try to pair that in order to make larger strides in a faster environment um, by publishing case studies and things right, like that. Right. So it, it has grown. It really has grown. It's, it's got further to go, but it really has. How how well would you say, uh, let's say, a, a, a typical uh, non-reptile vet is, if they'll agree to see an animal that I bring in uh, and they will agree to consult you, what's the learning curve for that individual as far as how much can you, you know, talk them through on the phone if, you know, if they've never treated uh, reptiles for prolapse, for example, or, or respiratory infection? Do you think the majority of them with a the consultation um, would be able to, to handle the task, so to speak? I, I do. I mean, I think veterinarians as a whole are, you know, I mean, they've been through a vast educational experience. And there are some things that are in particular to reptiles, but there's many things that are just simple, intelligent medication, you know, medicine practice. And most of them have the educational background to understand how to treat and how to interpret diagnostic tests, um, and also how to evaluate a patient. And I think most veterinarians, at least the ones that I've consulted with, if, if they feel comfortable enough that they're willing to see your reptile, I mean, some of them just will say, I'm not comfortable with that, I'm not going to do that, and, and that's fine. But if right. they do feel willing to do that, and they say, yes, I'm willing to do that, but I'm going to tell you straight out, this is not something I do on a daily basis, then I consider them very, you know, reputable and responsible people to consult with another veterinarian and, you know, carry out any treatment plans. And, you know, aside from that, and both of you I'm sure know this, that most reptile medicine is 99% husbandry. Most of these animals get sick because there's husbandry mistakes being made. And then okay, right, right. I basically say the other 1% is just bad luck. You know, where okay. this gentleman with this prolapse that we saw online um, I'm sure he was doing everything well and correct. That was just bad luck. And, you know, it, okay. there's no fault about anything. But 99% um, but of them are just knowing the basic husbandry and background and things like that. And um, a lot of that information can be found um, through either reptile breeders or keepers, um, other veterinarians, 
or other resources, and and that really constitutes most of the problem. Um, and then the other portion, like I said, is just bad luck, and all you can do is what you can do to try to resolve those situations. Right. So treat the animal, but also uh, treat the cause of, of the problem. Sure, because you're not going to cure that animal um, or resolve the situation unless the husbandry practices are corrected. If you put it right back in the same environment that got the animal sick, then you're not going to, you won't be solving the problem. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even, for example, if their temperature and humidity requirements are not being met, no antibiotic or other medication is going to resolve their issue. Their, their immune system is just not going to perform. So right. if you don't have right. that taken care of, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to resolve the issue. Well, since we've kind of begun talking about respiratory infections in general, why don't you know we on our on our first show and, and having you on, we wanted to address uh, a couple of the more common problems uh, in chondros. And you said it earlier when I asked the question: respiratory infections is what you get consulted on primarily. So maybe we could start uh, start there. And I guess you know we start at the beginning: the, the cause of of respiratory infections in chondros. Well, I mean, this is my experience, but my personal experience is that the causes are husbands-related. Either their temperature, humidity requirements are not being met, um, and it depletes their immune system, and then they get secondary, usually bacterial infections is what I've seen. There's several different species of bacteria that can infect the respiratory tract, and, and that's why we think they are opportunistic infections. We don't think that they're things that they catch you know, from other snakes or, or anything like that. It's, it's because, just like in people oftentimes, if your immune system is depleted, they're not going to be able to fight off the common bacteria that they see in their environment. Um, so when you say, so, when you say op- opportunistic, that means really the, the animal has the, the bacteria or the pathogen in its system already. It's normally living there, and the animal... Uh, tolerates it just fine, but when there's a breakdown in the animal's immune system for whatever reason, then that bacteria, the virus, the pathogen, then becomes active, and it, that, that's what you mean by that. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That, you know, that it's in the environment or it's in their body, um, in their respiratory tract already, but their immune system can keep it at bay. Same is true as parasites. You know, there's many parasites that we don't think probably cause any clinical signs, but if their immune system is you know, depleted, then then it can cause clinical illness. So, yeah, I mean, most of these, because we culture a wide variety of bacteria, there's no one particular one that they catch from anything. It's, it's just something that's endemic. You talked about, uh, about culturing uh, the bacteria. How reliable, when you take your animal to, to a vet if it's got a respiratory infection, how reliable is that culture? Well, I think that's a good point because it depends on where you're culturing. What you ideally need to do is there's, you know, normal bacteria in the mouth. So you don't want to culture the mouth. You want to get a nice open trachea with a a very small culturette and wait for, you know, that trachea to open and then get one fairly deep down within that trachea. And then what we need to do is when we get those results, we need to interpret them as far as the normal bacteria that we might see in the mouth in case we contaminated the culture, which doesn't usually happen, 
or the things that are traditionally what we call pathogens or, or bad bacteria. And that's pretty easy to determine. Now, is that are you are you doing a, a culture a culture and sensitivity based on uh, the sensitivity based on uh, different antibiotics that you expose the culture to? Yeah, exactly. Is that once you once you've grown the culture on the plate, then they use what's called antibiotic impregnated discs, little pieces of paper with antibiotics in them, and then they measure the zone of the bacteria that are killed on that plate and determine what are the best antibiotics to treat that infection with. Um, and, and you can do this one of two ways. You can do a straight culture swab. Some people do a, a tracheal wash as well. And I have done tracheal washes. I haven't seen them to be as rewarding as the cultures. That's just based on personal experience. I'm sure there's veterinarians who would disagree with me. The main reason to do a tracheal wash is if you want to rule out any lungworms or parasites. How common are parasites in... in uh, I've kind of taken over the conversation, buddy. I know, and we're still, uh, excuse us, our audience, we're still kind of getting used to our, our format, and we've had some callers, and uh, I don't quite frankly know exactly how to uh, screen and answer callers. Buddy, have you been working on that a little bit? I've been working on it, but I've been un unsuccessful. But I do want to add, if you are listening, and you do have a call for Dr. Bowles, you would want to call in to this number, 714 Four six four five two three zero, and uh, we will let you talk to uh, Dr. Bowles, and hopefully she can answer a question or maybe put you in the right direction. Um, no, go ahead. It's great. I'm I'm enjoying the conversation. Um, well, uh, gosh, I don't know what else can we talk about respiratory infections, uh, Heather. Well, um, um, maybe if you. Well, there are several other diagnostics that we use, um, far less commonly than cultures. We do x-rays of the respiratory tract. We can look and see if there's any consolidation or changes within the lung field. Um, you can actually, if, if they're of good enough size, you can actually put an endoscope down the airway of some of these snakes and actually physically look on a screen. Um, and see oh what the insides of the lungs look like and actually culture the deep ends of the lungs um, and do what's called cytology where we take samples um, from the lungs and put them on slides and stain them and actually look at those as well. We don't do that as commonly because then you're having to anesthetize a compromised snake. But there are other things right. we can do. We usually reserve some of those diagnostics for those difficult to resolve infections. Excellent. Um, I know, uh, Dr. Bowles, you and I have had this conversation in your office, and I was, I was talking to you about the amount of email that I get concerning respiratory infections. And uh, we've covered a lot of those questions, but a lot of times people will just want to know, what are the signs and symptoms that I'm looking for for a respiratory infection? And how, is it, how do I know that it's a respiratory infection and maybe not just a, uh, maybe a, a piece of uh, shed that maybe didn't clear the nostril during the last shed cycle. Is there any, any definite signs and symptoms that as a keeper should immediately raise an alarm bell and say, okay, it, we need to go see the vet, we need to have some, uh, some, uh, inter uh, an intervention for this animal? Um, sure. Yeah, the main thing that we see is labored breathing, which is usually evident by open mouth breathing. 
Um, certainly, okay. if you're concerned about a retained shed over the nostrils, make sure that the nostrils are clear. Um, but okay. oftentimes, what I hear from people is that their open mouth breathing, their breathing seems labored or um, increased in rate, um, or there's a tracheal discharge. So those are the things that I see most commonly. If you're getting to the point where you're actually hearing them respire and it sounds really awful, then that's a respiratory disease that's been going on for a while. And, and most of these, just like any clinical problem with reptiles, um, or most of them, I should say, is they've often been going on for a little while before it's really evident that they're showing signs. So the two things I'd look for is a tracheal discharge and open mouth breathing, or and any, any noise when they respire. Is it, would it be a rattling noise? Would it be a, a whistling noise yeah. or a wheezing noise? Okay. It can be any of those, and um, they call them rails. Um, but it, it can be anything okay. that just, you know, you don't normally hear them breathe unless they get excited or something like that. But um, anything that sounds congested, like there's some fluid, anything like that would, would be something that would be concerning. And, and most of the people with these snakes, they know they're snakes. And so if something draws their attention to their snake and says, you know, that doesn't seem normal, usually they're right on. You know, they, they, their instincts are correct. And if, if they go to the trouble of saying, okay, I think we need to bring them into the vet's office, there's usually something going on. Okay. Now, if, I'm, if I have a snake and I'm thinking, okay, maybe the snake has a respiratory infection, um, if I open their mouth, can I do an inspection of the mouth? And if so, what would I look for? Mm-hmm. You want to wait for them to open their trachea, that laryngeal opening, because it can take some time. Right. If you see any fluid or anything like that, there's a problem. There's no question. Now, yeah. that's a pretty advanced respiratory infection. So if you're just simply hearing an abnormal no- noise or open mouth breathing, but you still want to get them veterinary attention because you don't want it to yeah. regress to that state. Right. I've noticed uh, in a couple of animals I've brought into you, we've actually pulled some, essentially just pus out of the, the coena. Is that mm-hmm. a common time for a respiratory infection, to, for that to accumulate in that area of the snake's mouth? Um, well, that can be either, I mean, what we were talking about before were more lower respiratory tract infections. When we're pulling mm-hmm. pus and, and discharge out of the coenal slit, that's usually an upper respiratory infection Certainly it could be um, a discharge from the lower respiratory tract that's kind of lodged its way into the coenal slit. It's not really that important either way because the treatments are going to be similar. Um, Okay. So, you know, I mean, it's worth noting, but it's the the treatment goal and everything is pretty much the same. But certainly when you open that mouth, you need to look at the coenal. You need to look at everything. Um, You need to look at the coenal slit. You need to look at the tracheal opening. You need to look at all of those things because you're absolutely right. We have pulled some stuff out of there. Um, and then you can even get an idea when you culture the airway. I mean, obviously, if there's pus and discharge, that's not normal. Right, absolutely. What about, uh, you know, are there anything else that could cause it, like uh, maybe uh, an obstruction of the nasal cavities? Could, could that cause any of the, the symptoms that may make someone think that there's a respiratory infection? Sure, and that's why, yeah, like I mentioned, it's, it's important to know, notice if the nasal openings or the nares are clear because I've certainly seen mm-hmm. just retained skin over snakes, lizards, whatever, um, that mimic the signs of a disease when it's just an obstruction. Um, and you can even okay. um, flush the nasal pass 
you know, nasal passageways into the coenal slit and see if they're patent and see if there's any discharge because there's a portion of that coenal slit that you're not going to be able to see just by looking in the mouth. Right. It's much further up. And you can actually scope that portion. You can scope the entire coena up until the nasal passages with a small endoscope. Um, so, okay. you know, if we're not able to flush, flushing is easier because you don't have to be anesthetized, but um, if, if we can't find anything there and if it's a difficult case, it's not resolving, then, you know, we'll go ahead and scope the upper and the lower airway at the same time. Okay. For our listeners who may not be very familiar with snake anatomy, in particular with the regions of the mouth, could you describe where you would find the coanal slit for our listeners? Sure. It would be the roof of the mouth, just like if you've ever heard of cleft palate in a child. Mm -hmm. This is a normal cleft palate. That's normal for them in that um, there's a slit in the roof of the mouth of these snakes that communicates with their nasal passage. And um, that's a a normal um, structure there, but you would look right in the roof of the mouth. Okay. So where where the trachea kind of rests in the roof of the mouth is where where you would look. Is that right? Yeah, what they do is when they close their mouths, they elevate their trachea to communicate with that coenal slit and then respire or breathe from their lung into, or out of, rather, the, the nasal passage. Um, and that's why they can contaminate it with either, uh, you know, source, either upper or lower respiratory tract. Okay. So um, I've got a snake that I think has a respiratory infection. I make an appointment to come see you. What, you know, what, what can someone expect who's never been to a reptile vet before at, at an office like yours when they're, they're bringing a snake in? What, what can they expect their snake to see this happen to the snake when they're there. What exactly, could you explain to our listeners what would happen if I brought a snake in, I thought I had a respiratory infection, um, you know, how you would go about the, the process in your office? Sure. Now, if it's, if it's a client that I've never seen before, you know, not you, but a client that I've never seen before, the first thing we're going to do before we even, you know, look at the snake is we're going to talk about your husbandry and your diet. Um, right. And that's, going to be a good bulk of the appointment because, like I said earlier, is that most of the clinical diseases are due to diet and husbandry problems. So we're going to go into that at length and, you know, discuss any problems or any concerns or, you know, whatever you're doing great. Um, And then after that, we're going to do a full physical exam. And then we're going to decide, you know, what diagnostic tests are needed or not needed and um, what findings we found on that physical exam and then what treatment options that you have depending okay. on what we find or don't find. So, okay. Now, I have to say that Dr. Bowles and I normally agree with this part of the treatment. Is I normally like to, if I bring an animal in, I normally like to have a culture run just to see. So we're, we're pretty much spot on, hopefully, with the antibi- antibiotic that is mm-hmm. going to be selected. And my experience has been that when we go that route, it's a, normally a very positive outcome. Um, but let's just say... Um, you know, I bring a snake in, it's got a respiratory infection, um, I don't want to pay for a culture. What, what, what do you normally do in that case? How, how do you handle it from there? Well, yeah, and a culture is always recommended because that gives you a definite answer on what antibiotic we should use. But if you can't, I mean, you can't, and that happens. Um, but there's normal, um, or common rather, 
uh, bacteria that we isolate, and those include usually E. coli, Pseudomonas, Ceremonas, Proteus, Klebsiella. And so we're, those are the most common pathogens that we find in the respiratory tract. And so because just historically that we've seen those, those bacterial infections, we know which antibiotics traditionally treat those infections. So we go on a well-educated guess, as I guess the best answer that I can give you, is we okay. know what, what antibiotics traditionally treat them, and we say that these are the most commonly cultured bacteria, so these are the antibiotics we're going to try first. Well, um, buddy, okay. I'd venture to say that, uh, buddy, I'd venture to say that there are quite a number of uh, hobbyists out there. I know there are in the carpet world. I'm, I'm sure there are in the chondro world that, um, when their animal comes down with a respiratory infection, they uh, think that they have the knowledge and, and they will go ahead and they will treat that animal without uh, culturing it with broad spectrum antibiotics. Uh, maybe Dr. Bowles, if you could. Just comment on that practice. Is that just an absolute no-no? Um, you know, should they always bring it in into a vet? Um, if they yeah. try to treat it, have trouble, then bring it into a vet? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's two things. I mean, yeah, obviously, it's always recommended to bring it to a vet. And one of the most practical reasons why, and I, and I, I honestly practice in the practical world. I don't practice out of a textbook. But... Um, if they treat with a broad-spectrum antibiotic before they bring it in and we culture, oftentimes then, if they're not responding, either A, they haven't corrected the husbandry problems, so they're not going to respond to that antibiotic, or B, now they've started an antibiotic that has elevated blood levels, which is what it's supposed to do, and then if they say, okay, now I want to do a culture because it's not working, oftentimes that culture, that bacteria that will still be present in the animal won't grow on that culture plate because that culture plate is never as good of an environment to grow as it is in the body. And so now I'm dealing with this kind of problematic situation where I need to pull the snake off antibiotics, oftentimes in the snake's body, for one to two to three weeks in order to grow an adequate culture to identify the bacteria that's growing there, which may not have even been the bacteria that was growing there in the first place, and it may not grow in culture even though it's growing great in the body. And so I can't give you any practical information as far as what antibiotic we should switch to. I merely have to say, well, okay, now let's, let's go ahead and grab that antacacin off the shelf because we know that pretty much kills about everything but it can also yeah. have significant side effects. And so we, we try not to use that unless we absolutely have to, but sometimes we have to. Um, but right. you're, you're dealing with more problems by trying to culture after the fact than if you just did it from the beginning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. And, and I'll just reiterate that when, when I haven't cultured, uh, you know, we've had experiences like Dr. Bowles has explained, the animal didn't respond. Um, the way we thought it did, and then we were kind of had to guess a second time. So, and, you know, if the snake recovered, it took, seemed to take a, a much longer time. So I always try to, uh, if, if, the, if it's right, to, to culture. And, you know, my experience has been when, when I do culture that the animal responds very well to the prescribed medication and, you know, normally is back on track by the time the, the medication is finished up. So, you know, I know I get, I 
get questions about this all the time. Someone will tell me I've got a snake I think has a respiratory infection, and I, I have a bottle of Batril. Um, you've already kind of alluded to why that's a bad idea, but um, you know what, what does that do to how do we, when someone starts treating with Batril and they maybe don't follow through, or anytime someone uses antibiotics and they don't follow through, what does that set the animal up for if the, the antibiotic's been selected for doesn't really affect the pathogen? Well, it, first of all, they don't follow through and they don't give a full treatment course then they're, right. they're establishing a resistance many times, not all the times, but many times they're establishing a resistant bacterial colony. So then they've created, they've, they've basically created a second problem on top of the primary problem. And my experience is, and I know we've talked about this before, that many people will say, well, how long do I give this antibiotic for? And I said, until he gets better, <laughs> until we see him <laughs> on a recheck or her on a recheck until she gets better because in snakes, I found it takes a minimum of three weeks, but it can take a maximum of a couple of months. And wow. they just, well, it depends on how sick they are, and they don't show signs of their illness until they're sometimes deadly ill. And their immune systems, if their husbandry hasn't been correct or there's been other problems going on, I mean, some of these snakes have kidney and liver disease on top of the respiratory disease, and it's because of their primary clinical disease that they develop respiratory disease. So. You know, it, it, it just really depends on, on how severe the disease is and how well they respond. And so I like to treat at least a week, sometimes more, past any clinical signs um, because the way their metabolism is, it's just so slow. It, it's not like a mammal. It, it, they just don't work that way. Dude, so when we start giving a snake an antibiotic, is the snake more, is the antibiotic act more of like a, a static drug where it just holds the, the infection in check so the snake's immune system can take over, or is it actually a, uh, going after the pathogen to, uh, you know, help de decrease the, the load of the pathogen in the snake's body? No, it, it, will, it will attack the pathogen. I mean, it will. Um, you okay. know, different antibiotics work in different ways. Some of them attack the cell walls of these bacteria so that they can't survive. Right. Um, they cross-link their DNA. They do several different things. But, you know, or other drugs cross-link their DNA. But, it, you know, they will actually kill the pathogen. But my point is, is that all the garbage that's left in their lung field is not going to be cleaned up by an antibiotic. The immune system has to clean that up. And... So that's why I say that no treatment will work unless the immune system kicks in. And some of these snakes have a simple respiratory infection, and some of them are septic. And that bacteria is all through their body. And we've seen many postmortems or, or autopsies slash necropsies where we're finding bacteria in their kidney, their lung, their liver, you know, many different areas. So it, it's really not always easy to tell I mean, sometimes you can get a good idea by looking at the condition of the snake, but it's not always easy to tell how far advanced the, the disease is. Um, right. But the antibiotic will attack it. It's just it w they won't remain cured if they even cure unless everything else has kind of kicked into shape. Right. That makes Heather, sense. what do you what, what do you recommend as far as a, a feeding a feeding regimen during uh, while they're undergoing this treatment for a respiratory infection? Well, it depends because most of them aren't eating. I mean, okay. many of them, if they're that sick, they're not eating at all. So, <laughs> you know, if they're not eating, they're not eating. I mean, a few of them we've given fluids, injectable fluids, um, tube-fed food, because, I mean, some of them that come into my office, 
some people will say, well, he hasn't eaten in a week. Well, okay, that's all right. But <laughs> when they haven't eaten right. in three months, you know, or six months, then that's right. an entirely different story. And some of them are in good body condition and some of them are emaciated. So it, it really depends on, you know, what the situation is. But I will tell you that many of them, if they're advanced, they're not eating anyway and they haven't been eating for a while. So we need to rehydrate them first before you feed them. Um, and that's pretty simply done. But then we have to start, if they're not willing to eat on their own, we need to start giving them some formula that's a little more digestible and easier to um, basically assimilate into their GI tract. Okay. What would you so, say, uh, so we've done... Yeah, Bill. I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask quickly. I mean, what would you say the cure rate? I mean, of the respiratory infections that you see, and I know it's a, a broad range from mild to severe, but to the vast majority of these animals, um, they're cured from the respiratory infection and they they go on to to prosper. Or it, it depends on how bad the husbandry was in the beginning, but yes, many of them do respond very positively. Um, and it's not always husbandry related, but I'm just saying that many of the reptile clients that I see it is. And so if those things are corrected, it depends on how bad they were when they came to me. Um, it, you know, if they're emaciated and dehydrated and, you know, their kidneys are failing and things like that, then it, or they're septic, then it, it's not so good. But some of those will resolve after several months of treatment. And the ones that Buddy brings to me, I mean, they, they're usually done within two to three weeks. You know, right. because, you know, he, he has all of the other stuff. He's in the 1% where it's just bad luck. But, um, you know, it's just, <laughs> are you sure, it are really you sure depends buddy, on how are bad sure they buddy, are. Uh, maybe Buddy needs some husbandry uh, lessons. Some, no, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at okay, all. Okay, so I've brought the snake in. You've done your exam. We've, you know, you've diagnosed a respiratory infection. We're going to do a culture do I leave, you know, am I normally leaving, do I, do I leave with antibiotics or do I wait for the culture to come back? And, no. You know, yeah. Okay. How does you that work? You leave with antibiotics. The culture can take anywhere okay. from three to seven days to get the results, so mm -hmm. we don't want to lose time. So we're going to use uh, okay. an antibiotic that is based on what we historically know infects the respiratory tract of these snakes. And we're going to use a good broad-spectrum antibiotic against aerobic gram-negative rods and those are the most common okay. pathogens. Um, and those would include Batril. Um, they would include um, Fortas. Um, if they're really bad, I will go ahead and start with Amicacin. And, and as you know, sometimes we'll combine two drugs. Right. Um, right. So, you know, it, it just depends on the severity of it. And then while we're getting that culture back, um, once we get it back, then we can kind of narrow it down and decide if we're going to make any changes or not. Okay. Now, so if I'm leaving with antibiotics, uh, are these administered orally, injectables, rectally? How, how are they administered to the, to the animals normally? How I prefer it is injectable. Um, you can give okay. oral medications such as Batril, but many of the antibiotics that I prefer, um, Batril injections, especially repeated Batril injections, can be kind of irritating. So if I'm going to use them, then I'll dilute it with sterile water or saline. Um, you can use oral Batril, but um, occasionally people will have trouble administering oral medications. The, the snakes aren't swallowing correctly, or they're not, right. so they won't reach good blood levels. So 
I like the injectable medications. Number one, I know that you're getting the full dose into them. Number two, many of those only have to be given every few days as opposed to every 48 hours or something like that. So they're a little more easy okay. to administer. And, and so if, you know, I'm leaving with my snake and you have prescribed injectable antibiotics, will, will that be taught to me there or something I'll have to bring sure. back to have the snake, done to the snake? Okay. Um, right. Unless I have a client that really, really, really um, does not like giving injections, which is pretty rare, because um, quite frankly, they're easier to, to give injections to than to give oral medications to. Um, so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll make up the medication because sometimes it has to be diluted or formulated for the particular snake, and then me or a staff person, a technician, will come in and show you how to give the first injection or, or watch you give the first injection so that you're, you know, we don't let you leave there without being familiar how to perform this. Okay. Good. Of course, I know the answers to these questions because I've I've <laughs> I've frequented the offices. But there's there's a lot of folks out there that have never that don't have this experience, and I want to make sure that they're they're clear on, um, you know, the situation. So we had went over this before, but um, so let's say you know I live in an area that there's no reptile vet, and I've got a vet that I have. You know, maybe I have a cat or a dog, and I have a vet that that does cat. You know, I take my cat to. Could I possibly use that vet and and just sure. say, hey, could you call Dr. Bowles or, or and talk to her and and so you you think with you know as a team with with my regular cat vet, you think that you guys should be able to figure out a therapy for the animal and 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 figure out you know get the animal back on track. Yeah, you know, what, today with the internet and texting and photos and you know all of this kind of stuff, I mean. I have the ability, or any bed has the ability to have digital x-rays sent to me within minutes. Um, you know, like I said, we consult for a diagnostic laboratory, so they can just fax the, the, the blood work to me, um, and we can review it and, and you know, go over that with the, with the veterinarian. Basically, what I tell people is if you don't have a reptile vet in your area, call your dog and cat vet, ask if they're willing to see them. If they're willing to see them, one would think that they would say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I can to help, and if that includes consulting another vet or whatever they feel that they need, I, I think that's fine. But um, there's just so many more tools out there than there used to be um, that I think that's fine. Like I said, they're very well educated in diseases and things like that, and with the ability to consult, you know, if there's certain things that they're not familiar with, then, you know, we can bring them up to speed with that. I mean, that's not a problem at all. Okay. Why do you think that is these animals are able to mask their illness so long that we usually don't catch it until it's in in the later stages? Well, I think, you know, with snakes, I think there's two reasons. One, their metabolic rate is much lower than that of a mammal or a bird, and so the disease won't progress quite as quickly as far as its clinical signs. But the other thing is that, you know, they do still have a lot of instincts that are not domesticated. And they don't want to necessarily show signs that they're clinically ill if they were, you know, in a, in a forest in Australia or New Guinea or something like that. They don't really want to show those, those signs of illness because it kind of makes them prime targets for other predators or anything okay. like that. Um, it certainly doesn't make them 
the prime reproductive candidates or anything like that. I, you know, so that's not something that they want to exhibit. And they've taken steps to, just like birds, to try to mask that. Okay. So if they were to act sick the moment they started feeling well, they would be lunch. And that's one possibility, or, feeling, or they wouldn't be the prime reproductive candidates or, or things like that. Um, but like I said, okay. another big one, I think, with reptiles is their slow metabolic rate. Okay. Interesting, interesting. Bill, do you have any more questions about respiratory infections? No, I mean, what a thorough what a thorough conversation that was. I mean, uh, and Buddy, I think you did a great job about the kind of step-by-step, you know, if, you're, if your animal's sick and you bring it to a vet, this is what's going to happen, you know, this is what they're going to do and this is what you're going to have to do to take care of the animal. So I thought, I thought that was excellent information. Dr. Bowles, do you feel that there any, anything else that, there's anything else that should be covered with, with respiratory infections that we haven't already covered? I, I don't. I mean, there's there's other very uncommon causes. Here, there's fungal infections. Unfortunately, most of them, the treatment's not successful, and so we diagnose those on necropsy. Um, there are lungworms okay. that we find. Those are pretty uncommon as well because how many of these um, reptiles are domestically bred. Um, so, you know, there, there's other causes. There's even paramyxoviruses. Um, but those those are not treatable. Usually we find those on necropsy as well. So there are other things besides bacterial diseases. They're just far less common. Okay. All right. Well, how about if we move into the, the next uh, medical condition we wanted to talk about tonight, and that was uh, rectal prolapses. Um, so, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to knock wood here, and hopefully my luck continues. I personally have not had uh, any snakes that have had a rectal prolapse, I know that they seem to be fairly common in green tree pythons, um, and it, it seems that it, for some animals, it seems as soon as they have one and if they're able to be managed, that I'm not sure whether they, they lose muscle tone or muscle control over that part of their body, but it seems like they're more susceptible at a later date to, to prolapse again. Um, do, you, do you see many... Uh, Snakes with rectal prolapses? Um, yeah, a fair number, and other reptiles and birds. Um, I do see them. And, and they're not, I mean, some of them are rectal prolapses, some of them are cloacal prolapses. It, it depends. I mean, the cloaca is very different than a mammal. It's made up of three compartments. And you have the copperdium, which is where the rectum enters, and there's stool and urine in that area. There's the uridium, which the ureters and the reproductive system enters in the females. And then there's the proctodium, which is more of a storage reservoir for urine and stool. And any one or all three of those areas can prolapse. And those are simple cloacal prolapses. And those are something that are usually pretty easily reduced. And if you can resolve the, the origin of the problem, they can be resolved. Then we get into more complicated things like the photo that we saw online where, you know, a, a big portion of the of what looked like to me the intestine was prolapsed. I don't have my hands on the snake, but that looks fairly suspicious. Sometimes you'll see portions of the um, urinary or reproductive tract, particularly in egg-laying snakes, that are prolapsed. And so it, right. it really depends. It has a wide variety of severity and causes. 
Um, but it's all due to excessive straining, which is from either some sort of inflammation or a physical um, type of uh, problem like an egg, a retained egg or something like that, um, you know, that's, that's causing a physical obstruction that causes them to strain against that enlarged area or just inflammation from an infection or from parasites. Um, occasionally we'll see neurological diseases that cause that where everything just becomes flaccid. Hmm. Um, and then okay. we see, you know, prolapses from, from reproductive organs, from sexing, you know, when people probe or pop them, or from mating. That can cause inflammation. I mean, it, it obviously, okay. even though if you use a proper catheter to sex a snake, it's still not, it's still going to cause some inflammation. So you, you want to definitely oh, be gentle and clean as possible. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, the current thinking is in the Green Tree Python community is that uh, prolapses are generally caused by improper hydration. Do you have any thoughts on that? Are you regarding the dehydration? Yeah, dehydration. Or right. overhydration. Okay, oh, that's what I figured. Uh, dehydration, well, yep. Yeah, because, well, that, that certainly can be one cause, especially in the ur ur um, urinary tract. If, if, if they're dehydrated, they're going to produce, in comparison, I mean, they pr produce a, a urates and a urine type of um, combination. And if they have more urates, which are the drier portion, the more irritating portion um, to their urinary tract, that's going to cause inflammation. And that inflammation is like a bladder infection in people. It's, it's going to okay. cause straining. And that can ca certainly cause a prolapse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and certainly, I mean, I don't need to tell you, hydration is a very important part of their husbandry. Um, right, exactly. So, yeah, but definitely. Could definitely be a problem. What about um, diet? I've, could, I've uh, often heard. Uh, buddy, before we uh, leave the topic of hydration, um, maybe you could discuss, you know, discuss the the proper way to hydrate your animal. Is it just um, a, a question of giving it uh, fresh water? Is it a question of of misting the animal? I mean, how, how do you ensure that you are properly hydrating your animal? Well, to ensure it you need a hygrometer to measure the actual relative humidity in the enclosure. That's really the only way of completely assuring it that I know of. Um, and then, you, you know, you, you look at the animal. I mean, if, if they seem hydrated, if you pinch their skin and it stays pinched like a raisin, then you know that, that they're dehydrated. If it snaps right back into place, then you can feel fairly certain. If they're producing a lot of really pale urates, as, you know, and, and that's really prevalent, then you might infer that they might be a bit dehydrated. There's many different ways, and, and honestly, you two would be better, um, as well as, you know, me, as to knowing how that the recommended ways of hydrating them. They have humidifiers or humidification systems. They're spraying them. They're soaking them. There's humidity areas, um, things like that, that all of which... I, I think are beneficial. I think probably the most beneficial, I would assume, would be humidity, um, just aerosolizing humidity uh, or water into the air, um, seeing how that's, that would be their normal environment. But I've had, I've had them come in where they've, they've come to the hospital, we've set them up in incubators, and they just drink and drink and drink and drink and drink, and obviously that's not normal. Right. Uh, buddy, do you want to you comment on what's your preferred... 
method of, of maintaining your animal uh, at an adequate hydrated level? Sure. And like I said, this works for me. And um, I, I use a good-sized water bowl, which actually does raise humidity in the cages, obviously. But I offer fresh water, you know, every other day, every three days. I, I pull that water bowl out of there, and I scrub it, and I put fresh water in. And I'm, I've noticed that my animals, you know, whenever I change water, that night if I go down there, a large majority of them are actually drinking. Um, I, don't, I don't miss, per se, for hydration. Um, I will do it if I have an animal in shed, maybe to ease the shed. And then I do have animals that um, historically have never had a mister on them in, and have perfect sheds. So my, my preferred method for those animals is just, you know, have them to drink out of the water bowl, offer plenty of, you know, clean, fresh water. I think they, they know that the, when the water's stale and they, you know, they may refuse to drink out of it. And, you know, at that point, if you were probably to miss them or spray them, they would probably start drinking off their scales or off the side of the enclosure. But my experience has been when they drink, they drink a lot and they take a long pull. And, um, you know, I've also seen them, I've also personally seen them in the water bowl, um, actually mm-hmm. coil it up inside the water bowl after I've done a water change, and so they'll, I guess, they'll soak themselves to to keep themselves high, keep themselves hydrated as well. Uh, that's how I personally prefer to do it. Um, you know, if I have an animal that that is maybe, uh, you know, coming off a respiratory infection, I, I may soak that animal on top of everything else just to make sure that the animal is the hydration level of the animal is where it should be. And I essentially do the same thing Dr. Bowles recommended. I, I do the pinch test. I just take that skin, and if it if it looks to me that, um, the, you know, the skin stand together and then they're dehydrated or they need, you know, something needs to be done to manage their hydration better. Um, but uh, most of my snakes I raise from babies and, and keep them in my collection. And I start as young babies with, you know, you know, frequent water changes, and with neonates, I give them a nice flat water bowl with a lip where they'll act, they can actually perch on. Um, sometimes I'll see a neonate that maybe has like a wrinkly skin, and I'll uh, pull the perch out of that that tub and leave the water bowl in there. And a lot of times, the snake will perch just on the lip of that water bowl, and uh, within a day or two, their their hydration level is back to where it should be, and I I put the perch back and. Sooner or later, they they seem to figure it out themselves. That, you know, the water bowl is where where I find where what I need to where I need to go to get water. There's a lot of you know, it, you know, a lot of people say they it, won't drink out of water bowls, but it begs an interesting. Uh, I'll make a couple of uh, observations and a question. Uh, one of the uh, upcoming new uh, chondro keepers in my area, a young man named Evan, asked me uh, about uh, elevating water bowls. Uh, to get that water source closer uh, to the chondro as opposed to having him leave a perch, you know, perhaps, and, and get down to the bottom. Is, is there any advantage to, to elevating your, your water bowl if you have the ability to? Um, I used to have cages with elevated water bowls. and I mean, I, I think maybe if, if you thought maybe the animal was a wild-caught animal, maybe having a water source closer to the... Um, or if you have an animal that's maybe not acclimating properly, having a water source closer to the animal may actually help them drink a little bit more frequently. But um, I, I, you know, I use a ground-based water bowl, and I found that my animals, you know, though that night when they're active and crawling around, I'll, like I said, I'll find them crawling through or hanging out in the water bowl. I haven't personally felt the need 
for elevated water dishes. But if you wanted okay. to do that, I don't think it would it would be wrong to, to do that. The other observation I'd make, it seems like it's a pretty uh, common or, or I guess the, the new thing to do with a lot of the members of the MVF forum is as opposed to misting their animals, they'll saturate their substrate uh, with water. A lot of times they'll call it a sloppy, you know, water refill. They'll, whether they're using newspaper, I think, you know, a lot of the, the people advocate using newspaper as a substrate. Well, on a daily or every other daily basis, instead of missing their animal, they'll just saturate that newspaper substrate and, and use that medium to increase the humidity in, in, in the tank or in their cage. Right. Right, yep. Yep, I, I've, I do that occasionally too, just to, to bump up humidity a little bit and um, help a snake get through a shed cycle. So, and um, you know, what about you, Bill? What do you, how do you handle hydration for your chondros? Uh, you know, we're very. I'm very, very dry here in, in Texas. I mean, my humidity, if it gets out of the the teens, you know, I'm lucky, especially in the winter. So I, I do have a humidifier uh, in my room that I'll run in the winter. Um, and, you know, I think you, buddy, you said it perfectly. You have to know your animals. You have to know your the caging. I've got different caging in my room, and some of it uh, holds humidity better than others. Um, but kind of my goal has been thus far to just keep the humidity at a minimum that allows the animal to have a, a good, complete shed. And some of the... Uh, caging that I use uh, requires no supplemental raising of the humidity. Others, I've got to keep that substrate pretty damp. Right. So it goes back to being able to read your snake and be a snake keeper and make adjustments for each animal based upon each animal's needs. But, buddy, have you had any experience with the artificial fogging systems or... Uh, the the misting systems that are available, or Dr. Bowles, if you never, or are you familiar with them? Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen them. I have clients with usually chameleons um, that use them. Um, and again, I I don't think there's any wrong or right way. I, I think a lot of it just depends on the environment, the type of enclosure that they're kept in. Um, I even think just the heat lamps. You know, hitting the the water dishes provides some environmental humidity too. Um, so I, I think that, and, and I think Buddy made a great point: giving them fresh water every day. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. their water hasn't been changed in quite some time, and um, so if it's not inviting the drink, I mean, they're, they're not going to do so. Is what I would say. I posed that question uh, on the forum maybe a couple of months ago, Buddy. Uh, about how frequently you change water, and I got responses. You know, there's some people that are using uh, reverse osmosis or distilled water, and they change it every day. And then I think the longest period, uh, there were several pretty experienced keepers that were changing their their water weekly. So kind of all over the board there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, like I said, everyone kind of does things differently, and... um, you know, after you get some experience or if you've had some bad luck, the, that's normally when you start thinking about, you know, what am I doing that's wrong or how can I make it better? And so if things are working for you, obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't say don't change for the sake of change. It's it's when you're having 
some difficulty, then then that's when maybe you need to look at what's going on with your husbandry and and, and make the appropriate change. Very good. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, personally, I've never used a missing system. Um, I used to use a water bottle, a uh, handheld water bottle, and just you know, you know, when I when I did spray condors, I used to spray when I first started keeping them. I mean, that was that was the the only way that I was aware of is that you know you needed to do this at least on a, a daily basis, and um, you know I slowly weaned my snakes off of that. And to be honest with you, when I stopped doing it, every day I expected to go down and see when I checked the snakes in the morning to find my condors had died because I hadn't sprayed them, and it was really a hard <laughs> habit for me as a keeper to get out of, and it really raised my stress level when I stopped doing it. it you know, it, it, it took a while for me to say, okay, my animals are doing well, um, and, you know, they don't, they're fine without the misting, the, the daily misting. So, um, but it's funny what you get yourself into a habit of doing, and when you stop doing it, you just kind of wait for that other foot to fall and, you know, have animals dying left and right and mayhem and all the other stuff that goes with it. <laughs> well... Well, very good. Um, maybe we could transition uh, into if, if your animal kind of what we did with the respiratory infections. If, if, if you know, God forbid you, you do have an animal that's got a prolapse. Um, maybe Doctor Bull, you know, what should you do as a keeper immediately? You know, what what, what do you recommend? Uh, and then obviously, um, when do you need to take the animal to the vet if it's a small one? Is there something the keeper? Uh, can try to do to alleviate it, um, or if it's a if it's a, a large one, you know, kind of walk us through what then you would do. Well, the first thing is to keep it lubricated, keep the tissue lubricated, because the worst thing that can happen is if that tissue becomes necrotic or dead, then we either can't salvage that tissue and we need to amputate it, or we can't salvage the snake. Um, if they have enough of their for example, GI tract or intestine prolapse and it becomes necrotic. I mean, you can only what's called resect or remove and then suture the good, you know, healthy tissue back in place. Um, sometimes that's not doable. Like, for example, that snake in the, in the photo in, in that right. um, posting. But you want to keep it lubricated. And then what I would say is, is get them to a vet for two reasons. One is that we need to identify what's actually prolapsed because... A, a cloacal prolapse or a, an organ prolapse is just a, a clinical sign. It's not a disease entity in itself because it can be for several different reasons. So we need to get that tissue reduced or back inside the body while it's hopefully still healthy. And we need to try to, to you know, um, diagnose the, the primary problem. And, for example, we may need a fecal sample um, to see if the snake has parasites and needs to be dewormed. Um, or we may just need to symptomatically deworm them if we can't get that fecal sample at first. Um, if it's a urinary problem, we may need to talk about hydrating them, like you like you both discussed earlier. If it's a reproductive problem and there's an egg um, adhered uh, to the reproductive system, we may need to remove that manually or surgically. Um, and then, with certain conditions, if they're if they're that severely prolapsed, they may need surgery to actually go ahead and make an incision in front of that area and pull that tissue back into the body, sometimes even tacking it down with sutures. 
um, to prevent it from prolapsing right away because they're, they're very likely to prolapse again because the tissue is still inflamed even if you can get it reduced or um, either manually or surgically. So you need to, you need to keep it lubricated, reduce and, and what the prolapses. What would you recommend for the, uh, the lubrication to keep it lubricated? Oh, you can use um, Vaseline, um, KY, anything that would, would keep it moist. Because once it starts drying or desiccating, it's going to become necrotic more quickly. So any of those sorts of things would be fine. And, um, in the and case, then oftentimes, I'm sorry? I was just going to say, and in the case of, you know, oftentimes this will be something that you know, uh, going to work, I check on my, you know, my snakes in the morning to go to work. Uh, God forbid I see it happen. I'm able to apply some lubrication, but I've got to go to work and maybe can't get the animal into the vet, you know, for another uh, day or two days. Uh, is that well, going to be not, absolutely? Yeah, if it's not a, a, a horrible prolapse like the one in the photos that we saw, if it's a small prolapse and you're not able to get them to a vet, then what I would do is go ahead and lubricate it and then if it's enough tissue, you can apply sugar topically. And what sugar does is it pulls the extra fluid or edema out of the tissue, which shrinks it up a little bit. And certainly it's easier to replace less tissue than more tissue. Um, so if it's smaller amount of tissue to replace because you've withdrawn the fluid or edema out of it, then what I do is I just have somebody take you know, their thumb and just apply constant pressure manually to try to reduce it. It doesn't always work, um, and if it works, it doesn't always remain intact, but if you can't get to a vet, you know, that, that's, that's what I would recommend. So that's something that we can try, the keeper can try to, you know, to do that, to lubricate, reduce it. Sure. I mean, yeah, I think that's fine. It, it, you know, I think ideally you would take it to a vet because if I can see what's prolapsed, it might give me more information as to why. Um, and then there might be other tests that we'd want to run um, like checking for parasites and things like that. Plus, once that tissue that belongs inside of the body is now outside, it's going to have secondary infections because it's been contaminated by the bacteria in the environment. So oftentimes we'll use antibiotics and sometimes we'll use anti-inflammatories too to try to reduce the inflammation. So there's medical things that you can do symptomatically even if, if an infection wasn't the cause of it, it may be the result. Very, that's very interesting. Excellent. So, you know, we, we come in, we have a prolapse. Um, what normally, you said surgery is an option or sometimes manual reinsertion of the prolapsed organ. Um, you know, do you do any suturing? Is there anything else that, that's involved with, with the care with the prolapse? You know, do it I depends keep the on how severe it is. Or? Yeah, it depends on how severe it is. Like, for example, the one we saw in the photo, you're, you're not going to be able to manually reduce that most of the time. Um, most okay. of them you can manually reduce. Most of them don't need surgery. Um, what I usually do is I reduce them, and depending on how easy it was to reduce them, depending on how much tissue there was prolapsed, and hmm. I also, once I'm, once I'm able to reduce them, I watch the snake for a while. I mean, I don't just send it right home. Uh, if that snake stays intact, send it home and, and explain to the owners that, hey, this could happen. This could recur by the time you get home, but um, we offer to hospitalize them if they want us to take care of them for a while. We watch them for, you know, 
for 24 hours, and if it does reprolapse, we're able to keep continually reduce it. Sometimes we will put sutures um, to reduce the size of the vent opening to make it more difficult to prolapse, but you've got to be really careful because they still need to urinate and defecate through that area, mostly defecate. Right. And, um, and if they do have eggs, I can't make the vent opening too small, you know, or <laughs> right. I'm going to create a whole other problem. So um, it's just, it's important to, I guess, some of these are, are more simple um, and some of these can be more complicated, but elucidating the primary cause I think is important. Okay. Um, now, I've heard people that have green tree pythons that have experienced prolapse. A lot of the, the keepers have said, uh, if you get a prolapse, you may want to actually remove the perches from the, from the cage, and that way the snake isn't perching and their tail is not dropping and it doesn't put more pressure on, on that region where the, the inflammation and trauma has, has taken place during the prolapse. Do you normally recommend that for someone who has a green tree python, that they take the perches out while the animal's healing from a, a prolapse? You know, I, I don't know. I personally haven't kept or bred these snakes, so I, I don't know if that helps or not. Um, it doesn't hurt except for the fact that they, they like their perches. You know, that's where they tend to choose yes, they to do. be. So, right. you know, I, I kind of rely on the on the, the keeper and, and different keepers um, experiences, and if they say, you know, I really think this has helped, then hey, okay, you know, I mean, anything that I think may help, whether or not I can find a medical reason for it or not, sometimes it still works. And um, like I said, I mean, I rely on the keepers and the breeders very heavily. They know their snakes, and if they think that that's something that would be in their benefit, then I trust their judgment. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, maybe we can step back for a sec to go back to, to some causes. I've also heard um, that diet could play a factor in uh, prolapses. In your experience uh, as you know, a vet that treats these, have you seen, do you think diet can play uh, or factor in as a cause? As pro, to how much they're eating or what they're eating or... Um, I've, yeah, you both, know, I've heard that, uh, yeah, both. Okay. I, you know, I can't say for sure. I, I honestly don't know. I've heard that, but I, I don't know for sure whether that's, a, you know, a, I guess a, a factor in this. I, I think there's, the ones that I've seen anyway, and I can only go on my personal experience, usually there were other problems sure. like parasites or infections or they were, due to urinary or reproductive problems. But certainly, you know, I've, I've, I have talked to some people who've kept significant numbers of these snakes, and they tended to see an improvement when they said, you know, I guess a little less um, or different okay. types or different sizes of prey. So, again, I defer to their judgment if, if that's something that they feel or, if, you know, if there's certain things where we're not finding another cause, and I may say, you know, let, let's try this. Let's see if this okay. you know, improves the situation, particularly if it's recurrent. Good to know. Good to know. Um, Bill, have you ever, do you have any personal experience with, with rectal prolapses with any of these, with your chondros or with your, any other species of snakes that you're keeping? You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I've, um, 
certainly now with chondros, I luckily, you know, I haven't kept a large number and I haven't kept them for very long, but I've kept uh, carpet pythons for a very long time and I've, I've produced hundreds and hundreds of, of carpets and, and have kept many, many. I've never seen a prolapse in a carpet python. Uh, I know it happens. Uh, we were talking with Eric and Owen on their uh, show last night and I think Eric has dealt with a, with a single prolapse in a baby. I've never seen it. Well, that's a good interesting. Thing. I don't. Yeah, it, it is a good thing. I, I don't. I don't want to see it by any means. Right. I, I don't know if you saw. If you saw, uh, getting back to the uh, the forum, uh, buddy, somebody had posted an interview with Vladimir, who I guess operates the Bushmaster uh, farm in Indonesia, and uh, they're a farm obviously that produces a, a tremendous number of. of of farm bred uh, babies and they whoever was doing this interview asked him about uh, prolapse in chondros and he seems to think that at least in babies the nutritional status of the mother uh, has a lot to do with the incidence of prolapse in babies did you did you that's interesting i haven't seen it it's it's on my to-do list in fact they started in fact, they started a couple, maybe more than a couple of years ago, treating uh, gravid uh, chondro females with vitamin injections. And I think it's hmm. is it vitamin A and E. Or, uh, I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, it said that significantly decreased the number of prolapses in uh, chondro neos that they've seen there. Dr. Bowles, have you had any, I mean, any research or come across anything that would validate that? Uh, no, no research. Um, I, I mean, to some extent it would make sense. Um, whether or not they had any other issues going on or not, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with that. Um, yeah. But, you know, we I'm do see, and, and I don't, now, when you say gravid females, were they prolapsing their reproductive tract? No, this is uh, uh, this is gravid females that that are not prolapsing. Uh, these, I'm talking about uh, okay. the babies that they but their produce, offspring were. Their okay. offspring would would prolapse, uh, and I guess prolapse in chondros is more common in you know it's either the babies or the adults. It tends to be less common in in subadult animals, um, but they saw a decreased incidence of prolapses in baby chondros when they treated gravid mothers. Well, and, and, and I don't know. I don't know about the parasite status of those snakes. No, I mean, if, mm-hmm. if, if they had, if their immune system, if there was uh, malnutrition or vitamin deficiencies and injecting, for example, especially B vitamins, stimulated their immune system and kept the parasite burden down, that might mm-hmm. explain that. But that, those are all just theories. I, I can't say for sure. Did you say uh, B vitamin? Yeah, well, in particular, any of the vitamins, if you have, you know, many deficiencies, but, you know, especially like the vitamin um, deficiency or something like that, I mean, it, it's certainly going to play a, a, force, a part in their immune function, and I don't know if there were any parasite burdens or anything like that. I, I just don't know. Um, yeah. In mammals, we do see um, commonly in gastrointestinal disease, and this is usually an older dogs and cats, we will see B12 deficiencies. And we'll see um, inflammatory bowel disease, and we'll see 
um, pancreatitis, and we'll see um, different diseases, not prolapse per se, but, um, you know, so, I mean, it, it certainly could, it could play a part in GI health um, if their GI tracts are not functioning normally, supplementing It's interesting that you say that. I just happened to, to get online and look at what he says, and he says, um, most prone, prone to prolapse are one- to three-month-old neonates. The feces of these baby pythons, when examined through the microscope, would reveal lots of python teeth. I believe it was the result of vitamin deficiency in their parents. Lots of python, I'm sorry, what? A teeth. Lots of teeth, T-E-E-T-H. Okay. So, so the, the feces of the baby pythons, when examined through the microscope, would reveal lots of, lots of their teeth, like they had a deficiency that was causing them to lose their teeth. Well, and, and, you know, having your teeth pass through your GI tract would certainly cause it to be inflamed, I would guess. So, <laughs> yeah, I can see where that might be some, <laughs> some problems. <laughs> um, that, I could see that. <laughs> buddy, buddy, no comment? Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing internally. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting about the teeth is that I've noticed that I have, when I have males, older males that are all feed for their seasonal fast, um, when, they, when they're late in their fast, they will actually, uh, when they, they do defecate or, or pass something, there's a lot of teeth in, in there. And I'm wondering, is it because they're enduring a fast and they're nutritionally deficient? And I've never put that together. I just thought it was, a, well, you know, these snakes shed their teeth. And, you know, obviously they break a tooth or two while they're, you know, grab a, a mouse or a rat and um, they swallow the animal and the teeth go along with it. And it's, I guess, I always thought, well, later in the digestive process, the, the teeth would pass out. Um, but I guess why wouldn't they absorb the teeth if they can, you know, if, the, if they can absorb the uh, a full rodent, why couldn't they absorb their teeth? That, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. What are your thoughts on older males that are going through a seasonal fast that are that you know pass a lot of teeth, <laughs> Dr. Bowles? Uh, you know, I honestly I can't comment on that. I I don't know. Okay. Um, it could be. It could be. I mean, it could be a natural response to replenish them, and we see that in other animals. With other structures, um, we see that in molts and poultry. That when the poultry um, production business does what's called a forced molt, what happens is, is as the laying season goes on, the eggs become smaller and smaller, and so they do what's called a forced molt. Not all poultry industries do this; just some of them, and they'll actually starve them until it forces them to molt their feathers, and then they start feeding them again, and then the egg size increases. So. Huh. You know, they'll, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm grabbing at something here. But, I mean, I don't know it has anything to do with it. But I've, seen, I've right. seen, you know, other things that would make sense as far as that, that goes. Um, so it could be normal. It could just be a coincidence. It, it could be a cause of problem. But, again, that's when I rely on people who, like the gentleman you were referring to earlier, that has several of these snakes and has been keeping them for years, if you see the correlation, then I, I tend to respect that. 
That's interesting. A, that's interesting. But but he's uh, probably much more familiar with uh, with the Bushmaster operation than I am. I'm just under the impression that they produce a, quite a large number of babies every year. Right. Sure. And I don't think he was the uh, the head snake keeper, I guess, the or the site manager. And I but don't believe he's actually uh, at that farm any longer. I think he has since left Indonesia and is, and is back in his home country. So. Um, oh really? Yeah, Rico actually said that. Uh, I talked to Rico one time, Rico Water, and he said that. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Vlad that Vladimir was actually able to had a female at, at the farm there that uh, uh, laid eggs eight years in a row for them. Wow! So he's, def- uh, he's he, you know Rico really paid him a compliment that he's definitely a, a snake keeper. You know, Vladimir really knows really knows the stuff and. Is uh, you know definitely a good person for the operation that they were running there. Yeah. So that's pretty incredible, um, Dr. Bowles. Before we, the show can go on as long as we want it to, but we're about seven minutes from going off the air, and mm-hmm. I wanted to get your contact information out to the listeners so that way if maybe someone wanted to contact you or someone's in, in the, the Westminster area and they're looking for a reptile vet so they can, they can find your, your practice and, and use your services if needed. So how, how can we get a hold of you if we, if we want to, you know, maybe help you, well, have you help diagnose an animal? or? We have a direct email address. It's um, FST as in feather scales and tails, D-E-T, at yahoo.com. And they can email us directly there. There's a website, fstvet.com. Um, and then they can certainly call the office, which is 410-871-0244. Buddy, do you think you'd be able to post that uh, information on the MVF, the form? I can post that on MVF. And what I'll do is I'll post it up through my G- Green Tree Python Keeper page on Facebook. And I'll put that up and, and share that so so that way if uh, someone needs to get a hold of, of Dr. Bowles or Dr. Ryan at Feather Scales and Tails Vet Clinic in Westminster, Maryland, they can they can have that contact number. I think it, you know it's an invaluable resource. Um, it's always it seems that when people move to chondros, a lot of times it's now they start thinking, yeah, I, I should probably have a a reptile vet uh, that I'm in contact with on a regular basis. That way, should I have a problem, um, it's, we can take care of it quickly as opposed to having a problem and then trying to have the stress trying of having find, a sick snake. A and, right. Exactly, right. exactly. So, well, I will certainly be calling um, my local, I'll be calling my local vet and see if I can talk her into uh, taking care of chondros if I have a problem. Sounds like a great plan, dude. So, Bill, there's, you're saying there's not very uh, many reptile vets in your particular area of the country. No, there there really aren't. Um, you know, I'm in Arlington, which is between Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, I'm sure that I could travel to Dallas, um, but for me to do that, uh, that's pretty much a whole day, you know, deal at, at the very least. And if it if the animal requires uh, multiple visits. It's 
you know, in in a normal person's schedule, who can't just take off every, you know, the entire day when they're when their condor needs to see a vet. If, if I could have somebody in my local community that I could that I could take it to and they could consult with uh, Dr. Bowles, it it would certainly be a lot easier. Sure. Yeah, and, that, and that's the case Agreed. for a lot of people because there's not many that that do see them, and and sometimes it, it can be really tough. I mean, I have clients from Virginia, West Virginia. Pennsylvania, Maryland, and um, for some of them, it's really difficult. So, but yeah, m- most of the problems, you know, we can consult with other veterinarians, and you know, and do buddy, that. Successfully. Have, I'm sorry to interrupt. Good. We did have a call. Okay. Can you see that, buddy. Yeah, we have a caller. Let's click them on and see if they have a question for you. Is this Buddy? Yes, this is Buddy. Buddy and Bill Stiegel. Yes, sir. And who might this be? <laughs> hey, this is Brad, Brad Waffa. How are you? Brad, Brad, Brad. Waffa, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, I saw that there's only about five minutes left in the show, so I was just going to jump on and, and say, hey, real quick, um, will this keep going, or, or should I, I save questions and comments for uh, another time? The, the live audio going? will end but it will, we'll, we can continue and it will be recorded and when we upload the podcast, it will be included in the podcast. Okay. Okay, so, so we'll continue then. Okay, yes. Does that work? As long okay. as Dr. Hey, Bowles still um, wants to continue. <laughs> yeah, that's Sorry, fine. What, what? You got me for a little while longer. <laughs> okay, okay, perfect. Dr. Bowles, thank you so, so much. I, can't, I seriously can't thank you enough for getting on the air and for answering all these questions. Um, it's really awesome. Of you. I'm sure you've had a long day, and obviously you're doing other things too. So it's really great of you to uh, to share your time with us. Of course, no, I appreciate it. Um, I was so I'll, I'll just go ahead and comment. I'm Dr. Bowles. I'm here in uh, Orlando right now at NABC. Um, mm-hmm. We've had some some cool talks. I'm a I'm a fourth year veterinary student, and actually just passed my boards today. I just got the results back, so that was pretty exciting. Ah, congratulations. Um, congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm very, very excited. Um, so that, that's the other reason it's so close to home to me. Um, and my experience as somebody who's kept in bread snakes for over a decade, um, mm-hmm. this is uh, kind of an issue that's near and dear to my heart. And, it, and you know, it's, it's been frustrating for me for many years to have gone to vets, people that I look up to, people that I respect. And there are, I'm afraid, so few that really understand what they're doing when they're keeping these animals are working with these animals, so it's great that there are people like you that are, are really specializing in seeing a lot of these cases. Mm, thank you. Um, I had just, uh, I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't undermine or change anything that you said, but there were a few things that um, came up and just, I, I guess, points that I, I thought of that I would like to sort of tack on. Um, one thing that I would mention, um, kind of going back to the respiratory infections thing, is that at least in my experience, both with snakes that I brought in and snakes that I've seen clinically, is that these animals, they come in and they are so, so sick. And Dr. Bowles, you can tell me if it's sort of in your experience too. I, I think one of the biggest frustrations for me when I hit the forums is when I see this vet bashing. And I hear people talk about, you know, like I, I brought my animal in, like it was wheezing, I, I brought it to the vet, and like the next day it's dead. And like what did they do wrong, you know? Um, and I'm sure, Dr. Bowles, you can probably appreciate that. Um, and, and I guess that's one thing that I would try to underscore to, uh, to people without the same clinical background is that 
um, most veterinarians, when they see these animals, like they're really, really bad off. Um, mm -hmm. Most of these animals, I know you guys mentioned this before, but they hide their symptoms so well and for so long. Um, I think by the time they end up on our doorstep, like in many cases, they're really bad off. Um, so we're kind of behind the curve. Um, has that been your experience, Dr. Bullis? Oh, yeah. Oh, especially okay. with reptiles. Um, yeah. Now, now, but but I will say that has a lot to do with 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 people being able to recognize a disease. Like when Buddy right. brings a snake to me, I know he's gotten right on this. I know that it's right. early. I know that. Um, so it really depends. I mean, we we both know that many people will purchase a, a reptile from a pet store without knowing much about how to keep them, and many of them very well-meaning. You know, tr do everything the pet store tells them to do. Do does everything that they have looked up online or or what have you. But it's just not the proper husbandry. And so that's yeah. why I was saying earlier that the big part of the office visit is reviewing husbandry. Um, yeah. But most of these reptiles are seriously or even fatally ill um, yeah. by the time I see them. Um, so I, I guess over the years of being a vet and practicing. I've changed my approach a bit where, you know, before I kind of wanted to make everybody feel better and, and make everything seem optimistic. Now I'm, I'm very straightforward, um, <laughs> gently so, but I'm much more straightforward. And I say, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, this, this animal could be septic and could die at any time. You know, I want you to understand that we're going to yeah. do everything we can for it, but there may not be anything I can do. Because um, that right. does happen. But it, right. it's and, well, and antibiotics, and you know, you've taken pharmacology. Antibiotics don't work in two hours. You know, it's, it's not going to, you know, you're, you're right. going to need some time. Exactly. And, and actually to that point, and that was something else that I wanted to add was, you know, we talk about how 99% of our issues are husbandry related and, you know, 1% is bad luck or 1% is, you know, noncompliance and these other issues. But, um, you know, we, we acknowledge that 99% of our problems are husbandry related, but I feel like we then spend 99% of the time talking about antibiotics and, you know, <laughs> other treatment therapies. Um, learned some really interesting things here in Orlando this, this weekend. I had no idea, for example, that, you know, the vitamin D3 that we sometimes use to supplement our lizards, um, or the, the conversion, I should say, two vitamin D3 occurs in the liver at 88 degrees. So we can supplement our animals with, vit with vitamin D or vitamin D precursors all day long. And if they're not kept at their optimum temperatures, they're not going to... Um, they're not going to make it properly. And it's the same thing with our antibiotics. You know, if our animals aren't mm -hmm. in their preferred optimal temperature zone, we can prescribe Batril, we can prescribe Amicacin, Piperacillin, you know, uh, Fortaz, whatever we're going to do. We can do that all day long. And if we send our animals home, you know, even with the best of recommendations, if our clients are going home and they're not, they're not meeting those husbandry needs, then even our, our best recommendations aren't going to work. Yeah, no, I've been saying that since I spoke at NADC, is that, you can put any medication into them, but if you're not meeting their husbandry needs, it's, it's not going to do any good. Yeah. yeah do, you guys, do you guys think that, um, that there's kind of a mindset with reptiles that they are disposable pets to some extent where folks just maybe even know that an animal might be sick, but they maybe ignore it till maybe guilt, or some other reason kicks in and then they finally decide to see a vet or maybe not even see a vet at all. Um, do, you, do, you, well, do you think that has a lot to... Go ahead. You know, I think it actually 
sure, there are some of those individuals, of course. Um, but I, I've got to tell you that the ones that I see, that's not the majority. The majority of what I see is that they don't understand because they maybe they're first reptile. And, and you know they exhibit signs of illness quite differently. Well, first of all, not at all at the beginning. And um, right. they, they don't pick up on the clinical signs. The majority that I see, when I start talking to them about the folding fractures, the metabolic bone disease, and blah, 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 they actually feel horrible. I mean, they feel yeah, horrible. Right. They feel like they yeah, caused the whole problem, and they feel terribly guilty. And what I tell them, if I look right into their faces, I said, guys, because they'll say, you must think I'm the worst pet owner ever. I said, absolutely not. The worst pet owners ever never walk through my front door. So you getting in your car and coming here and waiting in that waiting room and going through the time to see me, which can be over an hour, you know, where we're going over diet and husbandry and things like that. It's a pretty lengthy experience. Is I, I make them realize that, hey, this might have been a mistake, but it certainly wasn't intentional. And and sure. I, that's the majority that I see. I mean, do I see some? Sure. You know, but, but you know, and some of them don't feel that they want to invest the finances in it when the animal only costs them so much or whatever. But I've also done surgery on goldfish, you know, so it, it really can vary. And um, I just don't, I don't, I don't, you know, gauge it one way or the other. I let them kind of gauge how they want the treatment of their, of their pet, you know, to advance. But the majority that I see feel, feel terrible. And it was just, yeah, it I, was out of not having knowledge. Yeah. And I would echo your experience, of course, my experience is much more limited, but it's been, you know, primarily in uh, in our clinics, and I'm at NC State right now. Um, you know, so a lot of the patients that we see have been, uh, you know, they've been they've seen multiple veterinarians by the time they make it to us, and, um, you know, they're pretty committed. I, I think there are definitely people that buy reptiles and they see them as disposable pets, and I think if you go to any reptile show and you look around, and you see some of the wholesalers and the people bringing in sick imported animals and they're still hawking them at, you know, horrible prices, uh, you know, I think it's a testament to the fact that there are certainly people out there that unfortunately still see these animals as disposable pets, but I think by and large, they're not the people that are coming to see us as veterinarians, and they're certainly not, I think by and large, it's it's not usually condor keepers, and I, you know, but no. uh, and Bill, you, no. you may be able to, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not usually no. one of the exceptions, and there's a lot of cheaper animals coming in, um, farmed animals, you know, certainly are I think to some degree condors are becoming more accessible, um, so we're starting to see a little bit of that. But uh, you know, no, I, I agree with you. Um, I think you know, by and large, most of the people that we see anyway are, are very dedicated, and usually it's just they made a wrong turn somewhere. Sure, they they didn't know what they were signing up for, basically. And and right. you know, when we go over that, I mean, like I said, most of them feel terrible and. I mean, I have exceptions, but for the most part, they wouldn't get in their cars and come in through the door. You know, they just they just wouldn't do that if they yeah, weren't exactly. committed. Yeah. Now, I will say, as I mentioned, you know, I'm at NC State right now, and we're we're a tertiary care facility. I will say that um, a handful of the respiratory cases that I've seen have had very resistant strains, and so I guess you know, kind of harking back mm-hmm. to the discussion earlier about um, you know the importance of cultures. Um, you know, and again, my experience is pretty limited by comparison, but uh, you know, what I have seen is pretty scary. You know, when you think of the value of some of these animals, both economic and personal, I, you know, it's it's horrifying to have somebody come in to say, you know, and, and they're ready to spend academic medicine dollars to save their animal, and we're running cultures and sensitivities, and they're coming back just like, wow, we've got nothing. 
You know, we we have yeah. literally no bombs to even lob. Um, and I would say that's so even with the latest for right, right. Even um, with the latest generation. Newest, exactly. Exactly. Um, hmm. Yeah, and that's, so, that's scary. Um, that's, pretty, that's pretty scary. It's pretty scary, and, I and Bill, I know that you're in, you're in human medicine too, so it's, I know it's been a big discussion there as well. Um, yes. You know, antibiotic resistance is very real, and it's it's changing very rapidly. And to think we're already seeing this in reptiles is uh, it's a scary precedent, you know. And it's um, I think for mm-hmm. a long time in veterinary medicine, we sort of discussed it as sort of a public health issue or a population health issue. In other words, like you know, okay, well, we'll throw betrol at this animal. We're not going to do a culture insensitivity. You know, we'll cross our fingers and hope it works. And if it doesn't, then we'll you know get serious about it later. And if there's resistant strains, well, they're out there, but, you know, we've got we've to do right by our client. If our client can't afford it, then, you know, we just do what we can. Um, but I think in some cases, you know, those strains aren't, they're not straying far. And I think, um, you know, at least some of the cases that I've seen are cases that are, uh, you know, they've tried these antibiotics before, a few things didn't work, and now they're making their way to us. I think we're, we are producing some of those resistant strains, and, um, you know, we're keeping them in our own collections, and I think that's a scary thought. I'll ask both of you guys this question. Um, you know, every single antibiotic that you have mentioned to treat respiratory infections and chondros, I have seen used in human beings to treat uh, various infections. Uh, mm-hmm. What exactly is the protocol, you know, where, uh, at least in human medicine, it, I think we're probably a couple of generations ahead of of maybe what uh, what is used at least in reptile uh, veterinary medicine, you know, how do you guys go about evaluating a new antibiotic? Uh, you know, if something uh, is available for and approved in human beings, I mean, do you look at that and you look what uh, the, anti- the microbes are sensitive to that antibiotic, and then you try it in in various reptiles? Yeah, I mean, if you have the benefit of a culture, you're going to look. At, at the antibiotics that A, it's sensitive to, and B, that are reasonably priced and reasonable to administer. Because yeah, if they're out of this world cost-wise, you're, you're, in most pet owners, they're not going to afford that. Um, and if they're difficult to administer, then you're going to have a problem with compliance. But and that's only in some people. But, you know, I always, for example, if I have antibiotic A, B, and C, and A is the cheapest, I'm going to go with A if I think it's a reasonable choice. You know, I, I'm always going to try to look out for that aspect as well. But um, there's also ones that we've seen used that um, that tend to be compliant and they tend to be very effective. I, I like Fortaz. I've used Pepersillin. I'll often yep. go to amicacin if things aren't working um, or if I have a highly resistant type of infection. So, you know, it yeah, just, and I, and it I would depends add, on that culture report. Yeah, for sure. And, and I would add, too, um, Bill, that um, some of the drugs that are used in humans or, you know, sometimes even drugs that we have a lot of familiarity with in other animals, um, you know, we start looking at them in reptiles, and sometimes the... Um, their efficacy is just very different. And I'll give you a cool example. This is actually just something I learned about. I can't pretend like I've known this for a long time. This came up uh, just this weekend in Orlando. Uh, but there's a drug called Convenia, um, which uh, – are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Okay. It, it's, a, it's a drug that we use in small animal medicine a lot, and it's um, 
kind of its big claim to fame. It's great for like say fractious cats. We can give it once and um, and go a, a week or two. Uh, Dr. Bowles, you probably have more familiarity with it. Are you um, talking about simple chefs? I think is you're talking the, about simple is that, the, is that the same drug as Convenia? I think Convenia is the trade name. No, Convenia is for GI upset. It's for vomiting. Um, there's a drug called Simplicep, which is a weekly injection of acephalosporin that's traditionally used for huh. staph infections. Okay, you know I'm going to trust your judgment on this one. I may, I may be glancing my notes incorrectly, but um, it, in any case, um, the, the thought originally was, well, if we can go a week or more in, say, cats or dogs than in a snake, you know, which has a much slower metabolism, we should be able to go weeks. I mean, this could be a fantastic drug, right? And um, they actually just did a study and looked at it and found that uh, reptiles are missing a carrier protein, and so um, it actually I, I is a half life about four about. hours. That, you know what yeah, I'm talking about? Yeah, that is an antibiotic. I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I know what you're talking about. I read, I wrote down Convenia. Maybe I wrote down the wrong drug. It was, it no, was no, you're fine. Last year, so you have to forgive me. No, no, you're <laughs> fine. Um, it, it's a 14-day antibiotic um, is right. what they use. It's traditionally used for skin infections. It's a cephalosporin. It's traditionally used for staph. Um, the only problem is that, like, for respiratory disease, that's not usually the, the primary pathogen. So I don't know, it, you know, okay. I don't know I, how effective that would be for gram-negative Rods or, or that sort of thing. It was um, it was yeah. brought up as yeah, yeah negative is certainly the more common one. Um, a lot of the drugs that we use, you know, have a, a pretty excellent broad uh, gram negative, sorry, gram negative spectrum, um, but don't cover some of the gram positives. Um, and there was an example I actually didn't write down the name of it, but there's a, a new bacteria that's been popping up in bearded dragons. It starts with a D. Maybe you're familiar with it. Um, had a, a very long name, but it's it's another one that's popped up a few times, and it actually is a gram positive. And so there was some discussion about using this drug for that mm -hmm. one. And, uh, mm -hmm. and of course, they found that this didn't work very well. So, going back to your question, Bill, um, you know, in some cases we even have antibiotics that seem promising, and you know, we, we try to repurpose them in animals that have a very very different physiology, and unfortunately, they yeah, just don't work. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. There's yeah, obviously a huge physiologic difference between uh, mammals right. and reptiles. Right. And actually... Um, now, this, uh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Brad. Well, I, I, was, I actually had a question for Dr. Bowles because this came up. Um, am I saying your, your name correctly, by the way? I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, something that came up... This actually came up at a talk last year, but... Uh, Are you there? Um, he's still uh, showing up on the board. Sorry, I, I couldn't hear. <laughs> no, I can't yeah, hear him either. I'm not hearing him either. Did you mute? Did um, you mute him, I, buddy? I did not <laughs> mute him, but I can, I can text him really quickly and tell him to call back in. But we yeah. lost him. According to me, according to me, he's still on the board. Maybe he'll drop. I don't yeah, know. I'm I not still, sure. I still see him on the board. Here in the uh, Texas studio. In the Texas studio, yes. In the Maryland studio, he's still now he's off the board, so I'll have him call back. Okay. I'll text him <laughs> see if he'll call back. Well, I, um, you know, I don't want I don't want to keep Dr. Bowles. Uh, also, um, it's late there. Where it's late here, uh, uh, so if she needs to go, uh, the, the show is 
is officially over, and maybe we can just have him have him uh, touch base with her if, if if he wants to ask more questions. Well, and you'll have you'll have my um e- the email address up, right? If he wants to contact me that way and the phone number. Yes. Right, yes. and he's also a yes. personal friend of mine. He he came up oh, and okay. uh, he he spent oh, some time with me. Oh, that's the young man who visited you. Yeah, yeah. So I was telling you, he okay. came up and sure. spent the day with me. It was, so he needed to spend some time with Scott. So um, hopefully he'll call back. And but if he doesn't, we can get him back in touch. And maybe we could. Uh, you know, I think the show went really well, and I really appreciate you coming on and putting up with our our, uh, our promotional show, um, oh, our yeah. first show, and some of some of the the little glitches we had going on. But if you would be ever be interested in coming back, we would love to have you back. I'm sure there's going to be more. I'm, I'm just imagining I'm going to have more email questions from this show probably about other aspects of. Uh, you know, vet care for reptiles, in particular with green tree pythons. So mm-hmm. maybe we could. Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll do work whatever I date. can do. <laughs> oh, I'll Excellent. echo that. Excellent. Uh, Heather, you were a great, Heather, great thank guest. You. Yes, yes, you were. Thank you very, very much for, for participating. All right, well, thank you. All right, All take right. care. Well, have a, buddy, All right, I'm, I'm thank you. Have out. a good night. Yeah, you too. Bye. All right, buddy. I'm logging out. Bye now. You did. You did a fantastic job. Okay, Bill. Um, before I log out, I just okay. want to say a couple of things. Um, we have some future shows coming up, and um, first off, it was a really good show. It was very informative. I think you know Dr. Bowles is a great guest, and like I said, I'm sure we'll have more requests for some vet talk. Um, but uh, before we wrap up, we are planning a show in April late to mid or mid to late April uh, and right now the the guest is Daniel Natouche we're trying to firm up a date with Daniel so as soon as we have a date nice. um, that works for all three of us we'll, we'll get it out to everyone so plan on the next uh, show being in April and from there we'll probably have uh, uh, Trooper Wash on and we'll probably have Trooper Wash on maybe in the June or July time frame and of course look for a date for that we'll we'll keep everyone updated and bill thanks for coming I on and wait. hanging out and and uh I, and I doing, can't this, wait. You doing did, this you did you uh you know you did a great job putting this together buddy i'm i'm, I'm very proud of, of you and the effort that you put on this thank you i appreciate it and uh have a okay. good night in texas, in texas all right studio. thanks buddy all right good night <laughs> everyone night. see you at the next episode good night, guys <laughs>